along with the eightfold you're kind of breaking up can you hear me yes i can i can okay now i can hear you okay i'll move the microphone a little closer all right is that good perfect all right on the eightfold noble path there is the item of right livelihood and that that needs to be visited from time to time throughout one's life but there is no one answer one size fits all to anything but basically what it's what it actually is pointing to is when the mind is noble there are some things that we just don't bother to do anymore. Now, in some places, there are um, a list of these things, but this didn't come in the time of the Buddha. The Buddha was just talking about right livelihood, and, a, and another way of talking about it would be right lifestyle. But in fact, that's possibly a better way of looking at it is right lifestyle. But in the list of no-nos, has to do with the other precepts of right action and right speech. So if you have a lifestyle or um, a livelihood that uh, just by the nature of that livelihood breaks precepts, then it would be better to revisit that on a regular basis to make sure that this is what you want to do. Now, the ones that are listed uh, primarily would be the uh, weapons and poisons and alcohol. That in fact, I've had to, t I've, I have talked and advised bar owners. And generally over time, they begin to recognize that they could do other things with their time. And then they try to justify the bar owner by saying, well, at least I know how to talk to drunks to get them to go home and other uh, excuses like that try to justify it uh, and being uh, in, in one way of saying it is the average barkeeper is half time at least half time psychologist and so uh, over time we recognize that even those kind of excuses don't work and I really do have to get out of the business of selling alcohol another one would be uh, weapons so you could say possibly one way of doing of looking at it is a gun store owner. But then the question is, where is this gun store located? Because if the gun store is in the hunting area in South Carolina where they're shooting deer and the people who come to buy the, the weapons are buying guns for hunting, that's an issue. But if that gun store is in fact the back end of a car after the guns have been purchased in another state legally and brought to this state to sell illegally, that's a whole new level. Because now we know that the targets of those weapons are not animals, but they're people. And so that's beginning to get really deep into heavy, dark, uh, wrong livelihood. The issues of poisons are a little bit vague in the sense of uh, if we have uh, 
let us say, a farm, then pesticides may be okay. But what they have found is, is that some uh, uh, pesticides are really not. We lie to ourselves about them, and when the proof comes in, they take them off the market, like DDT, for instance, is uh, banned now in the United States. We've got a bunch of kids in the house right now, sorry. It's okay. Uh, so, uh, DDT is still used in Asia because the Asians don't know how dangerous it is. So there's some issues about ignorance that's built into this. But it's hard to apply ignorance to weapons. It's hard to apply ignorance to selling alcohol. But there is reasons about the allowability of uh, pesticides and things like that. And if you're looking at it from the example of killing, we talked about animals and humans. Now we're talking about bugs. But what about then being a medical doctor prescribing antibiotics? Don't those antibiotics actually kill bacteria and biotics? So how far are we going to take this issue of poison? Okay, so you see that it gets kind of complicated in there. And the best way to understand it is that we have to keep visiting. And generally, the doctors will continue to say it's okay to use uh, and prescribe antibiotics. But the farmer, it's not such a good idea to maybe find a better way and not use so much pesticides and chemicals. And so there's... Uh, a range of things to look at with these three things of alcohol, poisons, okay. But then in the sutta, if we move away from the right livelihood into the other precepts, but we look at them from the perspective of a mind that's noble, when we're talking about right speech, then, the, then there is four kinds of uh, speech that needs to be regarded or looked at, noticed, that kind of thing. One of them is a direct lie, telling a lie. Another one we would be gossiping in the sense of saying that my product is better than, your, than his product over there. That's kind of gossip. Go away from those people and come over here. So we have to be able to say, come over here and take a look, but we can't say, don't pay attention to those people. That's the point of gossip that's to be avoided. And so um, there's also uh, an issue that has to do, this is closer to um, the Vinaya talking about the monks, but they have uh, a rule about buying and selling. Now, what do I mean by buying and selling? Most people look at the word buying, then they look at the word selling. But in the poly, we're talking about one word, buying and selling. That would actually be business. If you buy things, and then you sell them, then you buy things, and then you sell them. Okay? And that this kind of behavior invites the belittling, it invites the Lies, it invites uh, unwholesome uh, speech. And on the internet, that would be in the form of um, 
selling something by belittling another company, saying that our company is better, it's number one, it's the best, don't go to those people. Or um, telling, saying things that are not true. Selling things to people who don't want those things is selling. Okay. Uh, there's a difference between selling and being a cashier. So being a cashier is one thing, but being there selling stuff to people who don't want it, that's something uh, that is akin to, that, you know, people don't like salespeople. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Here's the reason why is because they're being sold something. This is at, also advertisement can go under the label of propaganda. Mm. Okay. So this whole industry of uh, selling and propaganda and all of the stuff that's done on the internet is really suspicious. Needs to be looked at. That's the kind of job that you've got that you might, in fact, find a, a better way uh, to earn a living. Go work at a nursery. There's two kinds. One that has flowers and the other one that has kids that are pretending to be flowers. But there's all kinds of things that you can do that would be a wholesome uh, occupation. But that the problem with these uh, things that we've been discussing has nothing to do with Hindu ideas of the law of karma. This has nothing to do with what's right and what's wrong. Mm. It has all to do with how does your behavior and your attitudes and your thoughts and verbiage and words and whatnot affect you. Some actual jobs will cause people to when they wake up to the dukkha, they can see the dukkha, and then they don't want that job anymore. Other people will begin to wake up and recognize, oh, it's not the job that's giving me dukkha, it's the fact that I don't like this job, and if I'd start to like it, then I wouldn't have any dukkha. But then later on, that same student begins to wake up to say, well, now that I like this job, I can see it clearly, and I can see that, in fact, it is unwholesome, and it all causes harm to other people. Let me go find something else to do. Now, eventually, what you could say is, is that we want to, with wisdom, get our life together so that we don't have to do much. You can see that our society, we call it global warming, we call it uh, 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 climate change, but basically what's going on is, is that humanity has um, exploited the planet Earth about as much as they can. And there's not much more exploitation to be done, and in fact we've exploited the planet to the point that we're about to destroy the place, at least humanity. All right. In that regard, we can say that almost any job that uh, contributes to our society is actually causing harm, and we should reconsider 
an example of that is living in a cold climate and having to have uh, heating, or living in a very hot climate and having to have air conditioning. So maybe it's better to go to some place where you can hang out all the time without ever worrying about becoming powerful. Okay. Taking that a little bit further, we could then say, oh, well, much of the global warming or the um, uh, climate change has to do with transportation. Maybe it would be wise if I did not spend my time and uh, uh, high-performing coin physics on transportation. And so we begin to get sedentary. We begin to see that all, all of these products that I have been buying have had an effect upon the world, and they didn't drain me the joy that I actually wanted in the first place. So why don't I rearrange or re-evaluate how I go about getting stuff? One could be always buying used rather than brand new if you can. Or another one is to um, to not buy so much stuff. But in fact, if we can get ourselves into that minimalist kind of mentality that has taken us a long time for what we call tiny housing to catch on. It will take a long time because the people who know how to build houses know that building a big house So they don't want to build tiny houses that make it easy. Not only that, the, the best part about a tiny house is that you can have these places done. I like your style. I, I was looking at those. <laughs> <laughs> and we get tired of paying $60 a month for a, a, um, um, an off-site uh, uh, storage shed. And then we go after paying $60 a month, we go into that storage shed two years later and recognize this is all a pile of junk. Why did I put this in that storage shed? And so eventually we begin to wake up to all of the things that we're doing that contribute to our lifestyle. And right livelihood is only just a part of the lifestyle. We can open that up to include all of the precepts and break, and figure out, well, how am I going to live my life? And the answer has partly to do with to find a way of living happily and easily without doing much, not needing much, not buying much, not producing much, just being at ease. And this is the, uh, the whole lifestyle of the Buddhist monk. With no place to go, with nothing to do, and I might have a cell phone, but I don't need four of them. And the cell phone that I do have was because one of my friends gave me his old one when he bought a new one. Then everything is kind of easy going like that. And so if we can have that kind of direction to go in, that would be the kind of in the future we could begin to take out some of this baggage that we're carrying around and let it go. Uh, I agree. I guess when, I, this is something I have to figure out because it's like, when's enough? Like, when is enough enough? I mean, I kind of told you before the call, 
mm, what what do I do for a living? And it seems like it just keeps on coming up more and more through meditation. So something is not not right. Something is not right. And I know that. I don't know how to explain it because every time, I, you know, you can use words and try to intellectualize it and rationalize it and this, that, but it's deep down, it's, mm, I don't know, <laughs> you know, just what you said. Uh, well, what you're actually talking about now is the fact that every one of us is a crowd inside. We're a crowd because one of the things is, is that all of the rules that we have built up, all of the laws or all of the boundaries or all of the uh, uh, bars, all of the standards that we have set for ourselves have two qualities. One is that they're not even in agreement with each other, that we don't have 100% congruent laws. Governments don't, people don't. Sometimes you think this way is right, and then sometimes you think that way is right, depending upon whatever rules or standards. And so we need to start examining the criteria for what rules or laws we're going to keep for ourselves. And then we have the other side of it is the uh, the child or, or the feeling state. Hang on a second. I want your money. It's for me and me go silly. Okay. All right. You need some money? Okay. Hang on. I'll be right back. Uh, as, as we were talking about uh, the integration of our own precepts or our own rules that we give ourselves, we have to learn to integrate them to make it less uh, contradictory and whatnot. But then also at the other side, we have child ego space or our feelings. Most often we will set a rule saying you ought to do this. And then and, and or then we will say, I I agree we should do this, and then later we don't want to do it. An example of that would be going on a diet. Yeah, I want to go on a diet. And I go to hell with the diet. <laughs> um, so we have to recognize that we have quite a crowd inside. We have a crowd of rules that don't speak. And then we have a fickle child who will go along and then rebel. And if we get our rules straightened out on the inside, that means then that we can find ways of stopping being so critical with ourselves, setting rules, 
making plans, setting rules that we don't intend actually to um, uh, to follow through from, or that we're not able to follow through from, and substitute those rules back to the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha only says he has just one teaching, just one thing, and we can talk about that is in the sense of, okay, now we've got just one rule. And one rule is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's the only rule that we actually need. Is this causing suffering right here, right now? And if it is, let's stop doing it and do something new. Whether it's thought, action, a deed, a word, an attitude, fear, whatever it is, we can wake up right here, right now, and change it. That's what the real teaching took is about. And so then we begin to apply that to everything. And so you can say, oh, well, I want to quit this job because in this job I have to fight people. It's not the right way to look at it. The better way to look at it is while you're writing this lie, can you then say, can I word this better so that it's not a lie? Can I tell the truth here? Instead, I noticed that you smiled, okay, so this, this is because you would feel better if you told them the truth. You'd rather tell the truth and feel good about yourself telling the truth than telling them a lie and getting them to buy. Yeah, I mean, it only hurts me. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. so, and it's not even necessarily like my job entails, you know, making them buy. It's um, I guess just people have no idea. I mean, what really goes on you know why are they clicking on that video did that video just appear because they liked it or did someone you know essentially target them it's like you know there's a reason why i partially have this flip phone um i mean people have so it's like i, I don't know how long i kind of want to play into this game and i'm not saying technology's bad because we can have this beautiful conversation as well but um it's interesting um, how powerful these corporations are, you know, from Google. I mean, everything from demographics to age to gender to the time of the day. I mean, you can, it's just crazy how much information they know. And uh, Do you know. know how much power Ford Motor Company had in the 1930s? Do you know what General Motors was doing in the 1930s? Do you know the war between uh, Henry Ford and Al Smith, who ran GM during the 1930s? During the 1930s, the United States had streetcars all over. Every little town had streetcars. Where are the streetcars now? Who knows? Al Smith and Henry Ford bought up every streetcar company in, uh, starting in Los Angeles and New York, and eventually they wiped out streetcars because people had to buy cars. Why do you think we have freeways? 
you think the GM and the Ford and the Exxon of the day, Esso and uh, Mobile Oil and all of those companies, they just sit back with their ears, you know, uh, laying back, um, just kind of bland about whether or not the U.S. is going to build a freeway system? Or do you think that they were pounding on the doors of the legislators to get them to do what these guys wanted to do to make a bunch of money? You think that the uh, Internet um, uh, moguls of today have power. You don't know what big oil and big auto has done already to the U.S. They're sure, the I don't know. Moguls. But I'm sure people really don't know the powers of, you know, Google and these other billionaire companies, um, which was supposed mm -hmm. to be a freedom in this sense. But now it's, you know, taken away. I mean, I don't need, I don't know. It's interesting. Except that what you're talking about is something that's happening in the society. This is all the society, GM and Ford and Exxon and uh, Esso and Mobile and Standard Oil. Actually, it was all Standard Oil before. Okay, those guys ran the entire industries and the whole industries were done. Now it's a different group because of uh, um, technology changes. But if, if GM had stayed on top of technology, then they would have actually out be easily outdoing Tesla, but they didn't because they were stuck in their old ways trying to control things the way that they were controlling them. Okay. And in fact, if you want to look at some control that GM has, look at the relationship between General Motors and Biden. So in, the, in this regard, there is all kinds of power plays that are happening in that world out there. But the Buddhist teaching has something that's completely different than that. And in fact, I'll run it by you. There's a, um, uh, uh, a piece of art at the spiritual theater in uh, Watsu and Mok that has a line drawing of a fat monk sitting in the top corner down below is the valley and the hills and the, um, uh, the, uh, the houses and, and whatnot. And above him is the sign that says, free is now. And the F is kind of a salamander or a gecko or some little frog-like kind of guy. And then the, uh, the caption that goes along the left, uh, excuse me, the right side is, oh, boundless joy to find at last there is no happiness in this world. Now, what he's talking about there, the word world, we have several different definitions of the word world. And one that the way that we normally use it here is not the planet Earth. That's not the world. The world is the world of human jawboning, the chatterbox of the world, the human communication systems. That's what our culture, that's the world. And to and there is boundless joy to be found when we recognize there is no happiness there. You can't fix it. You can't go out and fix GM and then be happy. You can't go out and fi fix Bezos. You can't go fix Zuckerberg. You can't go fix Elon Musk. You can't go fix uh, um, 
actually, uh, what's his name? Bill uh, Gates at, at Microsoft. He actually is now old enough to start giving some of the money back. He's one of the richest dudes in the world, and he's got all kinds of projects. I'm glad to see Elon Musk actually beginning to do this. But Bezos, Zuckerberg, um, uh, the English guy who's got Virgin Airlines, uh, Richard Brandon, all of those guys are just greed, 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 greed. They're at the top of the pile of greed, but they want to control things. They would think that all of the wealth that they have will make them happy, but they're not because they don't have enough and they're fighting with each other. In fact, it's so uh, interesting on the internet, the war between, uh, uh, I forget the guy's name in uh, uh, Twitter, but also- Jack Dorsey. Yeah, okay. And they're all just hating each other. I mean, you'd think that there would be a millionaire's club or a billionaire's club where they could all hang out and enjoy each other's company. Ah, no sangha there. No, they hate each other. They're in competition with each other. In fact, you could say that the richest guys in the world are nothing but fifth graders on the playground fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's That's interesting. That's all you've got. So you cannot fix the world. We need to find out is how can we live our life in spite of the world? How can we live happily knowing that the world is genuinely messed up? At its deepest core. And yet you'll find all of these people, the New Age freaks, the um, uh, the various factions, even um, uh, some Buddhists, they want to go out and do things politically. They want to go save the world, save the earth, save the planet, save uh, the forest, save this animal or two. And they're always out there trying to fix something. But number one, they don't get what they want. They can't fix it the way they want it. So they still remain unhappy. And it's not an actual good idea to say that what they are doing is completely positive. Sometimes they make a real mess of things, but you don't really know what's going on. Call them activist. The right way to live our lives is becoming pacifist passive let it go drop it put it away it's not to be fixed you can find your happiness someplace else in your own successes in your own mind you can figure out how to do things and get it done All right, now we kind of transition. <laughs> I wanted to kind of talk to meditation. I know we went off a little, but it still all applies because I kind of wanted to know that answer. Um, so I heard you talk about, um, obviously I just finished that 10 day with Cuenca and some of the stuff he says is different than what you're saying, for instance, he talks about Sheila, Samadhi, and Panya, and how essentially, um, you know, you have to start with Sheila and build build that up. And he's and you're saying this is like not complete, not ordinary. Um, 
So can we just touch on this first before we go into some other meditation questions? Okay. Um, Sila Samati Panya is the standard, ordinary, beginner's way of looking at it. Sila, if it's not understood correctly, which is generally not, Sila winds up being a set of rules instead of behaviors. And that in fact, in some quarters, the Sila becomes so important that the monk is never given any information at all other than the rules that he's got to follow. Because his sila has got to be perfect before he practices samadhi. And that's not what the Buddha teaches at all. He talks about it in the sense of purification, but Western mentality about purification and perfection are ideals. And we're trying to reach an ideal state rather than a working place, a place to start. And so the real way of looking at Sila is that if you get away from it all, now we're talking about not a long period of time, we're talking about right now, you can sit down, close your eyes, with nobody around, and sit there and think about picking your nose or something, and you have perfect Sila right then. You're behavior is perfect. You're not killing anybody. You're not lying to anybody. You're not stealing anything. You're not getting drunk off of alcohol. You're not doing anything wrong right now. You've got your behavior. Your seal is perfect right here, right now. Ready to go. Okay, so another way of thinking about Siva is actually what we, another word that would be better to use would be solitude. To get away from other people. To sit down and be on your own to let things sort of seep out and drain out. The question is, is that if somebody is practicing meditation and goes in and out of work every day, every time he comes out of work, he's bringing it back with him. This is one of the reasons why they want people to have at least 10 days because if they, they begin to dry out of the world, but maybe 10 days is not long enough because by the time that the retreats are coming close, I mean, day six is generally the hardest day of all because by day seven, they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, this is going to be over eventually. And now day seven, eight, and nine, they're planning on what are they going to do when they get out of here. I feel like I'm just getting started. I mean, on day nine or 10, and I just... Uh... I don't know what would be the next step for a longer retreat because you know how they have their own little system. It's like, oh, you have to do five and serve one and in between each one you have to wait three months and this and that. And so, I mean, what, well, what generally because people are not getting good value out of their retreats. So they're running off of that model. But in fact, I've got a good friend who um, for many years, I don't know actually what he's doing now. I hadn't heard from him for a while. But he was logistics manager at the big uh, Goenka retreat center in California. It was like he was number two dude at the place. Okay, and he was involved with all the facility stuff, building any new buildings, repairing furnitures, doing all of that kind of stuff, including 
the fact that he had ready and easy access to all of their information systems. And one of the things that they knew was, is that, you know, if you do a Goenka retreat, that you've got to fill out an application. They put all of that stuff online and they keep track of it because of the, uh, the history of it. And so the statistics that's coming out of there is, is that the average time for the second retreat is seven years after the first retreat. Seven years. What does that mean? It means that people are not eager when they come right out of one retreat, eager to go right back into another one. It's almost like, wow, what a relief it is to get out of there. I can do without this stuff for a while, and then they'll get themselves back into some major crisis or another seven years later, and then they'll go do another Goenka retreat, hoping that it will be better than the first one. But they probably didn't keep any of those skills for seven years. Yeah, I noticed that. It's kind of almost unfair. You can't, I don't know if you can make someone literally sit there for two two hours or so and don't let them leave the hall. Like, for instance, when, even my first retreat, I'm looking at this and I just don't understand how they're sitting there that long. So long story short, I ended up getting a little cushion off of Amazon, gave my furniture away, and I would just sit in front of the TV just to prep before going into the first one because I didn't understand. Most people are not going to take a some kind of initiative to do that. Um, and it's I don't think it's helpful for them. And that's why one of the first questions I asked in our first um, call was, you know, what is there someone to replace Gwenka or should we just let it be or, how, you know, how could because there's so many centers, but it doesn't seem like everyone's getting the same benefit. Um, I actually do not recommend students to do retreats mm -hmm. but if someone on their own asks me about it before or after i haven't had actually anybody yet call me while in the middle of the retreat but before and after and sometimes both and i don't ever discourage someone from doing the retreat either so I neither encourage nor discourage people doing retreats because I can see that they have value if the person is going to practice correctly. So the average person who is going to go do a great retreat and doesn't talk to me, if they did, I would recommend them not doing the retreat. But if they did call me, I would give them enough instructions on how to actually practice correctly so that they could go get some value out of the retreat. It's kind of crazy like that. <laughs> so if people know what they're doing, they'll get some value out of the retreat. But most people don't. They go with a lot of bad ideas and, and desires and hoping it's going to be uh, of some value to them and whatnot. And they wind up not putting in right effort at the right time to get the right results. So what would you so, recommend someone doing something, a longer retreat, if not going there? No retreat, just go well, by your own in the forest or something? Or Right, okay, now we're going someplace that I recommend that do what the Buddha recommended to do. Go to the forest or to the foot of a tree or an empty hut or a pile of straw and sit down and start watching what's going on bringing mindfulness to the fore is the uh, uh strange way of talking about it. 
but sitting cross-legged in a meditation hall after spending uh, whatever monies before, during, or after to do a meditation retreat was unknown in the time of the Buddha. But those actually started happening in the 1950s to a guy by the name of Uba Ken, who was actually basically the new government's uh, secretary of the treasury for the country, the newly formed country of Burma back in the 1950s. And it was already very Buddhist. And Do you so think he, people should charge for that? Do you think the Dhamma should, people should charge for that? You know, they go on, I won't name any names, but there's certain lineages at these three-year retreats. Once they're done, they're called, you know, a teacher, and then they charge X amount of dollars for these retreats. You're like, wow, that's a lot of cash. Do you think they should be charging? Is that ethical? I mean, what would you, what's your take on that? It's complicated. Oh, okay. And we've got several uh, threads open right now. Uh, shall we go back and talk about Sila Samantipanya? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll talk about charlatans and Dhamma later. Okay. Uh, I think I've said all I need to say anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> so, the whole idea is to get into seclusion. Go to the forest, go to the foot of the tree, get away from everyone. As far as camping, sure, that's what the bunks have. If you'll actually understand the outfit that, the, that a brand new monk is given, it's 2,500-year-old version of camping equipment. It's camping gear. The pot, the robe to make a tent, the umbrella with the netting. And the, uh, the big Sangati robe can all be used as, as tent, bedding. That's what the monks carry. And when he goes out on Bendabat, they carry all of that stuff because they're, they may camp out in the, uh, um, uh, the back area of some local lot, but it's still camping. So camping out, that would be the teachings of the Buddha. That's getting into seclusion. So by going camping, getting away from it all, not a retreat, because there, there's all kinds of legs and packages and uh, wallets and things to look at. Mm. Right? But to the woods, no. Now we can be in solitude. When we're in solitude, our sila is perfect. We got to give it that say okay here we go from there unless of course you bring the chainsaw to the forest and then we've got some questions about <laughs> your camping equipment but if you had the camping equipment that was in mind with what the uh, monk would have then you're good to go stay and so now we go for the purification of uh of the mind and the purification of the mind is merely nothing but getting rid of the hindrances. That's all we have to do is throw the hindrances out of the mind, and yet Goenka doesn't even bother telling you about that. Mm. They don't even do much about you've got to clean your mind. You've got to clean it every time that an unwholesome thought comes up. Clean it out, put a wholesome thought in your mind. That's mm. a part of the teaching that Goenka get and yet it's right there in the Anapanasati Sutra as mm -hmm. well as many places. Mm -hmm. 
they're all in love with the Satyatanas who can attend, and yet the hindrances to be eliminated are right there is the item on the, uh, the Dhamma-Nupasana. You can't really do Dhamma-Nupasana so long as you've got hindrances in the mind. So those have to be cleaned out, and then what we can focus on is the Dhamma itself. Approves it on a path to all that stuff over, and in doing so, we begin to figure out one important thing. And that one important thing is, is that I can change. I am not stuck. I am not required to do it the way that I've been told to do it. Okay? And the way that I've been told to do it, almost always the way that Siva is taught, is, is that all oh, karma runs for a long time. If you don't get caught for what you did bad in this lifetime, the karma machine is going to dig your uh, corpse up some 300 years from now just to kick your ass. Mm -hmm. Now that's the way that Buddhism is taught. Okay? Which means now that the way that they teach Sila is interfering with this whole concept of the purification of view. And the view is, is to keep looking and keep noticing what's going on and keep recognizing that you can change it over and over again, right after to change, to make a change. And then you begin to get the attitude that you can change. And with that attitude, we lose that uh, loser's position or the victim. The victim is the person who is not able to change. They lose. They're victimized. And many students go into uh, a retreat being a victim of their lives. And then the next thing that happens is they become a victim of the retreat center managers. And they never do figure out that they're here to come out of their victim position. They just choose or they just change which victim uh, hood they're in. Mm -hmm. And so changing the purification of the view is to put the point up is that we can change. And by doing so, we can become a winner. We can become a lion. This is the Samasankapa part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Okay, so there you go, Sila Samati Panya, the wisdom to wake up. Now, here's the thing. There are two eightfold paths. One is for the ordinary people, the Lancastons, the children of uh, Thailand, uh, and ordinary people. That's the religion of Buddhism. And then there is the eightfold noble path of the noble. And the Eightfold to Noble Path, the path of the nobles, is a super mundane path. And that path starts with Panya, goes to Samadhi of the mind. And then Sila is the natural outcome of having a mind that mm -hmm. is together. So mm -hmm. we start with the rhythm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so somewhere along the way, people have to make that transition from the ordinary path to the noble path. And, the, and that transition is problematic. For many, many centuries, in fact, that, that transition was kept secret, esoteric, etc. Because the actual teachings of the Buddha in the time of the Buddha 
were well accepted because he he was friends with the king. And they just let these guys just hang out and have a ball in their life. But when the mass people, number of people started doing that, the kings and the um, uh, Brahmins and whatnot couldn't control them anymore. The Brahmins were losing a heck of a lot of cash and not, key, and not gaining the land because their favorite thing was funerals. And boy, did they reckon cash at funerals. Mm. They still do big time and then a big, big event. And mm. most, all of them get the right promise to the right ceremony at the right place on the conscious river. at Varanasi. Mm. And, and it is a huge charlatan racket that they've got going. Mm. Why? Because they convince the people that there is a soul. And so while the body is burning there, while they're chanting, they can tell at the right time they've actually, the funeral fires are so small that they have to break the legs to get the legs to fold over so that the feet will burn. Mm. But there comes a point in time when um, the nose starts to bubble, ferociously bubble, like boiling water, which means that now the brains are boiling, right? And so they call all the other Brahmins over that are doing other funerals in this place uh, on the at the burning hats in Varanasi, and they'll take their sacred club. I think they've only got one, and they share it around because you know they don't do two of these ceremonies at the same time. They can wait; it doesn't take long. But they'll take this item, this shillelagh, is what it is. It's a burl with a, a handle on it. So it's a big, heavy, thick piece of wood. It's used kind of like a club or a bludgeon of an axe. And they'll take that whap and hit that skull mm. as hard as they can, the one that's bubbling and boiling inside, and all of these hot brains spread all over the people. It's a blessing, as well as a huge amount of steam is let off. Mm. And that's soul being released into the sky. Mm. And all that's worth at least 100 acres of land to mm. have that done. So this is how it's done. And that whole ceremony then, the Buddhists say, oh, that's a bunch of crap. Just go have a, you know, a nice little burial. Do what you need to do. <laughs> Get rid of the remains as best you can. No big ceremonies needed, but everybody likes a big ceremony. So, the uh, the whole point about all of this is, is that it was kept secret because the Brahmins began to hate that there were people all over the place who were wise enough to see through their racket. And so Buddhism became uh, an object for uh, the Hindus to uh, weaken and destroy and bring in. So the Buddhism of today is actually part of Hinduism, with the Buddha being the 24th Tathankara or something like this, and all of that. But what that means is, is that they have religiousized the actual people and brought all of that superstitious belief back in. And so that's the ordinary Buddhism is the superstition. And so the way that the actual nobles remained alive, you think is that that being completely true, then the nobles get wiped out. Oh, no. 
sometimes there are students who come by and ask the right questions to the right teachers at the right time and gets the right answer, and voila, he is introduced into the note. But in fact, I know exactly when, where, and how that happened to his teacher. Okay. And, he, and that the teacher that he took on with that happened to have been the Sumpet Contourage of Thailand at the time. Like in 1930, uh, Vicky was in fact Sumpet Contourage. He was the highest ranked monk in the country. And this was Vicky Budadas' teacher. So if that's the case, that means then that uh, this noble teaching goes right to the top of the Sangha. But in fact, the Sangha uh, Buddhist has many, many nobles. I have met personally nobles in the current. Even though the vast majority of Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka are all into the Sudhimaka, all into the ritual stuff like that, there are still those who can tell what the actual teachings of the Buddha are. But it's been kept kind of secret. That it was Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa that let this out. That we don't have to go through this ritual finding the right teacher and asking the right questions to get the right information. But now basically there's a, uh, there's a password. And the password is Buddha Dasa. If you know the name of Buddha Dasa, you can walk into any wat or any temple in Thailand or the United States. There's probably 200 watts into the United States and talk to the abbot and say, I know about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. I've got a friendship with one of his students. And mm-hmm. immediately you'll figure out whether that monk is ordinary or whether he's noble. Just watch his reaction. Mm-hmm. You'll know it before he. You'll know whether he's noble or not before he. Do you know any good Watts in Nepal? There's many guys. Yeah. No, I'm not in Nepal. Though I have done the uh, the, the the typical tourist trip in Nepal, mm. but I would say that Nepal is closer to Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. With Dhammasala and all of that, uh, Rishikesh and and, uh, and whatnot like that. And I would also say that nobility does exist within the Tibetan Sangha. That in fact, we've got a, a video of the Dalai Lama visiting Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and calling Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa his elder brother in the Sangha. Now that's an important point. Mm-hmm. That Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa in Thailand is considered to be his elder brother of, of the Dalai Lama. So that connects both of them together in a very noble way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's evidence enough that the Dalai Lama is noble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, there have been nobles, there have always been nobles. But within Western Buddhism, we've had um, a kind of story, oh, there hasn't been any enlightened beings since we've lost how to do it. It's something that we've got to rediscover. And then, in fact, in pragmatic Buddhism, a a movement in the United States, they are actually intent on trying to rediscover the actual lost teachings of Buddha 
not knowing that it's never been launched. <laughs> mm. um, I was going to ask you when we were talking about the Shiva Samadhi and Panya, is there a wrong way, wrong type of Samadhi? Well, there's a wrong definition of the word Samadhi, and that's what we give to you. Um, is is that the word is wrongly translated as concentration. Mm. And that in fact, we're not doing anything that has anything to do with concentration. Now, normally we have two different uses of the word concentration. One of them is, is that we are concentrating things down to their essence. An example of that would be concentrated milk, frozen concentrated orange except nobody drinks frozen concentrated orange juice. We make it samati again by adding the missing ingredient that was taken out, water. Hmm. We re-add the water that the water was taken out, merely for transportation and advertising purposes, but anybody who's bought that tang or that uh, uh, frozen concentrated orange juice will not drink it the way that it came taking it out of the freezer and licking it. Oh, it's so bitter. You have to put the water back into it, right? So in that regard, concentration and samati are actually opposites of each other. Because uh, the word samati means to gather together the needed factors. When the mind is whole and integrated, it means that we're not lying to ourselves or to other people. What do you mean by that? Lying to ourselves and other people splits us up, makes us a cloud. We're separated now between the truth, the back and forth, the wishy-washy, in doubt. I don't know, do I do this, do I do that? The mind is no longer unified. It's now a crowd. If you have a rule, a standard, oh, I want to do this, and then you don't do it, now that's a crowd again. Do precepts help with that when you take precepts? Is that the point of them? I mean, what is the actual point? When you take precepts to help purify the mind so you're not this, that, or no? The precepts were uh, the teachings of the Buddha that have the Eightfold Noble Path, that have right uh, speech, right action, and right livelihood, is what nobles do. Also, the whole quality of the triple gem of taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha, all three of those, and it is uh, referred to then in some of the later sutras, is that a Sotapan is one who does take the triple gem, takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, but that almost always winds up being ceremonially. And so they take a ceremony like a wedding ceremony. But weddings, as you know, don't guarantee that the marriage is going to last. Right. So ceremonies don't mean crap, but we do a, a whole lot of ceremonies. And so in this ceremony, every week they go to the Wat and they'll do the triple gym and the precepts. OK. The Panatipata, Vairama, Ni part of the precepts, as well as Buddham, Saranam, Gachami, Dhamam, Saranam, Gachami, Sangam, Saranam, Gachami. You probably heard some of this stuff someplace before. 
Well, Budam Saranam Gachani means Budam is actually in the dative case. Well, I was going to actually ask, what's the point of actually chanting? Like, what is the point of actually chanting? Uh, well, if you are chanting in that moment that you are chanting wholesome chants and you understand what you're saying, the mind's not wandering away. You're, you're spending your time focused on what's going on, and you can actually mull it over. Do I actually understand the Dhamma well enough to take it as a refuge? Do I understand Sangha well enough to go find a Sangha to find refuge in? Mm. And do I understand the Buddha and take refuge in that to be able to do it right here, right now? Mm. So the Triple Gem is... Uh, very, very important. But in Western Buddhism, we've kind of got bad translations of the of the Dhamma. We don't have any signs of any Buddha anywhere. But the thing that's most missing of all is Sangha. And in fact, all of the Buddhist teachers in the West are in competition with each other. They're not Sangha. They're not best of friends like the Dalai Lama and Bhikkhu were the best friends, they were Sangha together, the noble Sangha of nobles. Mm. And that's what we actually need, that if you are in fact a Sotapan, that means that you are associated with nobles, that you are associating and keeping your mind on the Dhamma because that's your record, and that you uh, 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 have freedom on your mind, but at the top, and when the mind is noble, then because the mind is noble of the person, that means he is not killing people, he is not harming people, he is not lying because he's got no reason at the moment Okay, so there's your word samanti again, and so we can go back to the issue without uh, concentration, because there's another kind of concentration. But that's when mommy tells the daughter to do your homework. Sit down and do it. Concentrate. So the baby doesn't like doing that. Put you to the edge. Down, work really hard. Get into a try hard. And we call that concentration. Pushing. Not have to be lollygagging our way through our algebra. But pushing them. Because you don't like it. And so there is actually in the framework about there is no value. I can't hear you. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. No, I can. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, there is a bit of noise in your microphone, but it's not a bother. Mm. Uh, when you move around, it uh, rushes against your chest. Okay. Okay. So, um, we were talking about concentration as being not what we're practicing. Is that we're practicing gathering the the factors together. 
we can see gathering the factors together of the Eightfold Noble Path means right sati, right investigation, right effort, and right attitude. If we bring those together to bring us samati mind. The actual practice that we do is gathering the factors together of the first jhana, which means removal of the hindrances to gladden the mind, to apply the mind to the wholesome, sustain the mind of the wholesome, and practice with gladdening the mind to practice the skill of feeling sukha, not dukkha, and then be able to, con uh, to control the high points, the elation, the top gear, the top dog stuff of being over the moon in joy, which is called the pity. But that's temporary, it doesn't last long, but we still have to gain those factors together. So the first five items of the, are the first actually five, there's an actual sixth one in some sutras, and that is the body is relaxed. But the body relax is actually part of Anapanasana. Now going back to the point of the street, especially about the um, long, strong determination sitting, is, is that students are not comfortable. Mm. They're not relaxed. They're really uptight. They're scanning the body, but they're not actually scanning for the tensions in the body to release the body. You said, yeah, once you said like, uh, <laughs> you said like Gwenka scanning gone wild. Like, what do you mean by that? Do you, don't, do you think any method that has to do with scanning the body is bad, or would you say that's good, or neither or? or? Well, it's a very formalized practice of doing step three of Anapanasati. There is a much more natural way of doing it. But in fact, uh, we Westerners are very much in favor of doing things in an organized way rather than doing it in a natural way. But in fact, you could not build the, the Great Pyramid of Gaza in a natural way. It had to have been done in, with great organization. We run um, our, our school system with great organization. All the children in one age, they teach them all the same thing in first grade, and they teach them all the second thing, uh, the same thing in the second, and in the third, et cetera, like that. And then they allow some diversity only in high school. But it's not much diversity because whatever they have is only only what they have available at that school anyway. Okay, so a kid can't take a course in rocket science because there's no course in rocket science to take. All right, so it's all organized. And so our Goenka retreats are all organized. And even his teaching of step three of Anapanasati is all organized. And if we practice Anapanasati in an organized way, we'll miss the point. It has to be practiced naturally. Okay. Okay. And so the organized method is going to start at the top of the head, get some sensations, begin to move around and down, etc., like that. And when you're over here, you're not paying attention to what's over there. And then eventually we get scanned to the word you can scan all the body at one time, so they say. I don't know of anybody who does that. But one of the real outcomes or one of the real goals is to scan the body well enough so that you can find the tensions, the discomforts, 
the things that need to be adjusted and take the right effort to adjust them so that the body can come to a state of peace and relaxation, step four. Okay. So we actually learn to control the breathing, to breathe in long, mindfully breathe in long, and mindfully breathing out long, will actually then train and change the mind to start paying attention to our breathing. And if we just say, oh, just watch the breath, the mind will just wander away immediately. Right. It's sort of like the distinction between playing a video game versus watching someone else play the video game. If you're watching someone else play the video game, then it's really easy to get distracted. If you're playing the video game, it's going to get really hard. Mom can okay. call her two sons, and one's playing and the other one's watching. The one who's watching the game is going to pay attention to mom, and the one who's playing the game is going to ignore her. He's going to stay in the game. Okay. okay. So in that regard, if we're actually breathing in long and breathing out, Long and thinking about breathing in long and breathing out long, then when the uh, the unwholesome thoughts possibly coming from mom come up, we're not going to give them any shift. We're just going to throw them out. Never mind. I'm going to start watching the breath again. Never mind. Start again. But we have to control the breathing because if we're not controlling the breathing, then that never mind can take a long time before we come back and start again. And most of the time when people see that their mind has wandered away and are now in hindrances and are now in unwholesome thoughts, they won't change the thoughts back to wholesome. Instead, they'll punish themselves. They'll be critical of all oh, you turn you let the mind wander away. Then they have doubts. So oh, I don't know if I can do this or not. Maybe Goenka is the problem. Maybe the retreat's the problem. Or maybe this and that and the other thing is the problem. And now we're just all going to our thoughts. Mm. So it's not, so scanning is not necessarily bad. It's just the organization as far as systematic way, you would say. Well, in a way, it has its value, but in another way, People don't ever complete it. They don't get that far because they don't actually use the scanning of the body or noting of the body, uh, which is, by the way, the same thing as the uh, Mahasi method of rising, falling, touching, sitting. The rising and the falling is the in-breath and the out-breath. The touching is what Gawanka is doing with his scanning. But he is, does not mention the fact that you have to keep track of your posture. And we keep track of the posture with a proprioceptic body sensation. In fact, right now, uh, the example is you know exactly where your feet are. If one of them is laying one way or another, you know that. You know which way they're pointed. Whether one of them is flat on the floor or raised in the air, if a heel is on the floor, if a toe is on the floor, all of that information you know, and you don't have to look down to see what your feet are doing. Hmm. How do you know what the feet are doing or what position or posture they're in? It's called the proprioceptic sensing system. Just like athletes, they know that if they put their hand up like that, they're going to put it where the ball is going to be so that they can catch it. And all of this is done with a very sophisticated processing mechanism inside the mind that works very fast. Humans are actually surprised, except that dogs do the same thing. You have a dog playing frisbee, he does the same thing. So humans are not all of that great at uh, 
hand-eye coordination. But the dog could not catch the jump in the air and catch that frisbee if he did not have that kinesthetic awareness of what his body was doing. That's a good question. So I guess it seems like after a lot of these retreats for me, it seems harder to fall asleep because the energy in the body, there's so much sensations and just buzzing all over the place. Is, does that just come with longer periods of time and there seems to be a little more sensitivity? Obviously it wears somewhere, off after two or three days, but. Somewhere I hear lurking in there is a rule about shall go to sleep. No, I just said it you may were be told harder that when to. You were a child, you got to go to sleep. You got to get up in the morning. You got to go to school. Okay, so we live our lives being told how to live. And when we are practicing something now that does not promote our rules, we get confused. Now, it's not the tingling and the buzzing of the body. But in fact, the tingling and the buzzing of the body would be more likely from correct breathing than scanning. Because correct breathing will get the body oxygenated. But the real reason why people stay awake in retreats is because they're developing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. That's one skill that is developed primarily, or let us say that is, uh, uh, is most likely to be developed by a student, is mindfulness. Why? Because we have to remember to never mind start again. We have to remember to come mm. back to the body. We have to remember to scan. We have mm. to remember to keep scanning. Can't just get that mind, just go like that. But it's hard to develop that uh, uh, shati if we're not putting some skin in the game. Mm. We have to control the breathing to keep that shati going so that we don't have the mind wander away from the breath. So now that we've got that skill of sati going, that skill of sati is a kind of waking up. That's what we, I mean, I use it all the time as wakey, wakey. Look, wake up and see what you're doing. So now that you're waking up and seeing what you're doing and you're putting your head down on a pillow and say, now is the time to go to sleep and all you've got is wakey, wakey. Mm. And so the way that I recommend it to students, knowing that that's not only possible, but it is desirable, mm. is to have the thought, well, wow, that means that I can just lay here and enjoy the night. I can let the covers come up and I can feel so comfortable, no place to go and nothing to do with the, for the next eight hours. And I can just lay here and have happy thoughts. Mm. Wakefulness is something that the Buddha teaches. He does not teach sleep. It te he teaches only if you are tired to go to sleep. But if you're practicing correctly, you're not tired and you're not sleepy. And so what do you do all night? In fact, the monks practice this at least twice a month. The, the uh, most practicing monasteries, not all city monasteries do this. And some, some of them, uh, the city monasteries will do it occasionally throughout the year at a ceremony, and that is when the whole watch stays up all night long. No one goes to sleep. Mm. That in fact, at Watch the One Mo, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa would start giving a talk 
at about two in the morning. And he would last until sunrise. Mm. Those, and all of those talks are always taped and are, are very preciously kept. Mm. And they're uh, still played. So those are the, and, and so he would start at about two in the morning and go until about the sunrise, uh, getting close to 6 a.m., depending upon what time of uh, the year it is. And then the monks would go out on Vendipot. Other monks would, would leave uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 uh, uh, the Dhamma talk and go and chant. The chanting was not a big thing at Watson Monk, and the chanting that was done was almost always done by monks who were visiting Watson Monk, and they were already used to doing the chanting. But generally, the residents of Watson Monk didn't go chanting. Not at four in the morning and not at six in the evening. Mm. Okay, so, um, but that didn't mean that they're not up at right. four. The bells do go off at four o'clock, but not everyone, uh, when they wake up at four, goes to chant. And in fact, in the retreats, they normally get people up at about four, and the first thing they do is have that sitting. So, sitting time, rather than chanting and sitting. But those are the things that, that happen. So um, that whole idea of wakefulness, that's a good point that you're asking about. That it's okay if you're not tired, that you don't have to sleep. You can sleep later. But in fact, uh, uh, monks typically take naps in the hot afternoon in the tropics. They even have words for it in certain languages, like the siesta. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the hot part of the day, there's not much commerce done. People don't go to the store at 3 in the afternoon unless the store is air conditioned. Mm. They stay at home and stay cool. But at 4 and 5 in the afternoon, things get cool and that's when people drop it. So, having a nap in the afternoon when it's hot and, and uh, everybody's tired is the easier way to do it. Mm. But then it doesn't matter that you're up all night because that's a good time to get solitude to enjoy yourself. But here you've got that Western mentality that you're supposed to use a bed sleeping. Yeah. When you use the bed, you're supposed to sleep. Told that childhood. Mm. So now you have a different perspective. Now we're no longer having, oh, you should go to sleep. And now we're having that one pool again. You are awake in bed, and you're giving yourself dukkha, telling yourself that you should go to sleep. Yeah. So, so catch that dukkha. says, never mind, I don't have to go to sleep. back. Ah, I can stay here and enjoy the night. Okay. And listen. Um, is there a point of really being in a full lotus position when meditating? Is or is that just kind of like a brag kind of deal? Uh, I, we're already far on time, but I didn't even realize that. But. Even even in the sutras that we've been talking about, of go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut, go to a pile of straw, 
and sit down, in the translations, it has actually the language cross-legged. But the word in Pali does not mean cross-legged. It means a seat or a chair or even a couch, a sitting place. But in fact, the Buddha talks about, or the suttas talk about a sitting place made ready. Mm. And you can go and sit. But now Asians have been sitting on the floor. In fact, uh, it's tropic, not just Asia, but it's the tropics all over the world. In the tropics, very reasonable people don't buy furniture. But people in the northern climates have furniture because the cold floor in the wintertime. And so we put a carpet and we get off the floor. We have high beds to get away from the floor because the floor is cold. This is old traditions, right? And so we take our children off of the floor and put them in a high chair to eat. Thai people, they don't eat, sit and eat unless they go to a restaurant. And even there, it might not be the case. Yeah, here but too, they, they just, just sit on the ground with a little table. <laughs> well, not even a table, though. Just throw the food all over the middle of the floor and people have to reach across and they'll just sit on the floor. Mm. So the, the uh, now I have, um, a, let us say, a stepdaughter that I met when she was about 11 years old, and she's in uh, university now. Um, and in the past 10 years or so, every time that I've seen her eat, she sits and eats in the full lotus posture. We have had actually parties here at the house where the only person sitting in a chair is me. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that I'm in the chair is because I'm supposed to be higher than everybody else. I'm the big dude in the neighborhood. Mm. Okay, so uh, everybody sitting on the floor is part of our culture. It's not part of Western culture. Mm. Cross-legged postures are Asian. And which posture they sit in is um, uh, cultural. So that the Burmese have the Burmese posture and the half lotus and the full lotus and all of this kind of stuff. But in the Zen traditions of Japan, they sit on the heels. And that the Westerners who can't sit on their heels because of the pain will have a Zen bench. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason for that sitting on the heels. And that is, is the same military posture. It's designed to be able to sit and be comfortable sitting and be able to pee on your feet in one or two seconds. There's an actual procedure that's practiced to get up that fast. To raise the back so that you're now on your knees while you, and you actually push so that you can get your left leg out and get a stance. And then you bring your right leg out and now you're ready because during that time you've used your left thumb to push on the heel of the samurai sword so that it's out in the air when you grab it with your right hand so that you can do this because you're just stood up. And all of this is done in about two seconds of time. Okay, That's why the Zen posture is that posture because it's a military posture. It's designed okay. to get up. If you're sitting in the lotus posture, how long does it take you to unwind your legs and get up? <laughs> Right. Ten, yeah. ten seconds. Enough time to get sliced in half twice. <laughs> mm. Mm. Okay. So there's a great deal to be said about postures and recognizing that ultimately 
the posture is not important as comfort. Because if you are uncomfortable, you're dissatisfied. If you're uncomfortable and dissatisfied, that's dukkha. We're coming out of dukkha. The way to come out of dukkha is by coming, uh, by getting the body to relax. And so the postures that we will sit in will be the postures that we will find relaxation in. And if sitting on the floor in a cross-legged posture or sitting on the floor in a, a full lotus has value, ego, okay. Or mm -hmm. it, pr it proves or shows some training. But like I said, some Thai kids can sit in the lotus posture their whole life and it doesn't mean a thing to them. They do it naturally. It's an easy posture to sit in. But struggling to get into a posture and struggling to hold the posture and then struggling while you lose the posture in pain, what value is that? Right. Okay. What value is there in that? Other than the fact that it's a stable posture so that you can sit, so you can find other postures that are stable. So that you Okay. And since and, you were raised in the West and were given a high chair instead of the floor to sit on, your body has grown into a position to where it's not natural for you to sit on the floor. But here you are, oh, I'm going to be doing Buddhist meditation and the Buddha sits in the floor in the spot posture. I got a spot like the Buddha too, or I can't understand what he's saying. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So the posture is important only in the sense that you can be comfortable. Okay. Because if you're comfortable, then you can relax. And relaxation is part of the jhana factor, is to relax, sukha, to be safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. Those, that, those four items are part of the definition of the word sukha which is exactly opposite of dukkha. So feeling unsafe, unsecure, uncomfortable, and unsatisfied, that's dukkha. But feeling safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, that's sukha. That's a skill to be developed. Okay. And we do that by gladdening the mind, by taking the thoughts that we have out of the hindrances, out of unwholesome things, out of want and not have, into being satisfied with what we do have right now is good enough. In fact, you, uh, this is going back to the very first question or one of the first questions you ask, and that is, when is enough enough? Right, the answer is, is enough yes. is always enough. The question is, the human mind is the one who determines what is enough. And we don't, and a lot of scholarship goes down a lot of people who become Buddhists wind up becoming scholars. They even go so far as to write books, and some of them even start translating one sutta after another. That's, that's a, a scholar. That's a good point, kind of. And I noticed this with meditation too. And I asked this the first question. You're like, "Oh, got you." When we first initially talked, and I wasn't maybe because I was thinking more futuristic, but it seems as one's practice with meditation, it seems like their desires and 
for a lot of otherworldly things kind of slowly seems to diminish. It doesn't, I don't really necessarily care about a lot of things. Doesn't mean I don't care about people, but it just seems like I'm just good with the simple, basic life. I don't need much. Like it just seems like a lot of other stuff just kind of diminishes. And that's why initially the start of this conversation was the one thing that might not be perfectly in line is the livelihood as far as kind of career that I'm doing. But um, do, why does that seem to happen, you know, with more and more practice meditation that a lot of desires and other things seem to kind of slowly diminish? I mean, I still have some desires for sure, but. Actually, even when people are practicing wrongly, that still happens, but it happens slowly. Perhaps it takes years. But if you're practicing correctly, then you're practicing being satisfied with what you have. And so we start looking at all the stuff that we want that we don't have because that makes us dissatisfied. And we start getting enough. And enough is enough. And when enough is enough, we're satisfied with enough. We do not have to become scholars of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. We just need to know enough to be happy. And yet look at Western Buddhism. It's all booked up, all scholared up, all suttas up. They want more and more and more and more information when they've got way more information than what they need. Why does that happen? It seems like a lot of the intellectuals have no really like inner experience. You know, did well, you notice that's that? Well, because they want to get it right before they have the experience. Oh. They want to make sure that they're doing it right because so far they don't feel good. <laughs> okay, and many of them actually do practice. But they still wind up going back to the books, trying to get something out of it because of whatever they're doing is practicing is not correct. But instead of going back to the basics and going back to what is the Eightfold Noble Path and what is the, um, uh, the, the practice of Anapanasati, they go off into uh, the suttas that have never been translated. Oh, let's not do suttas. Let's go get some commentary. Let's go get some other old work. Or a meditation app. Mm -hmm. All right, let's open a meditation app. Right. <laughs> exactly so. And that's the reason why we wind up being very highly scholarly about Buddhism and yet don't know the first thing about Buddhism. Mm. The first thing that we need to know, and the only thing that we need to know, is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Mm. That's all we need to know, because that's all the Buddha teaches. And yet we've got 45 volumes of old text. We've got Jakarta's big, thick books. We've got Abhidhamma's huge number of books. When all we need is some of the basic stuff. Now, it's interesting to fill in some of the gaps and some of the holes. To make things interesting, an example is is that I will often quote the sutta where the Buddha says, "Oh monks, I will teach you one thing: the mind is so fast that I do not have any even an analogy for how fast the mind is." That's in the Anguttara Nikaya. 
Mm. But normally I teach out of the Madra Manakaya. But there's a lot of stuff like that. that, uh, that you know, it fills in the gaps. It touches the holes and, and whatnot like that. And, that's, and it makes it interesting to continue getting that kind of information. But many, many people have gotten full hog into getting the data all correct before they ever learned to do anything. And, mm. and people do that with chemistry. I mean, they would rather read a book of chemistry than get out some nitro and get out some glycerin and blow themselves up. Mm. But that's where chemistry lies. Chemistry lies is when you start putting things together and see what reactions you get. Yeah. yeah so why does it happen in meditation um, that certain, you know, whether it be trial, childhood traumas, um, certain houses that you lived in, it almost seems like they come back like picture picture clear and even possibly before that and you can almost seem like every you can almost see like every action or wrongdoing that you did at a kind of an an action because of that action it seems like you can really start narrowing down these things and that's it it becomes evident it becomes truth i i don't really know how to explain this so I'm well, hoping you can help what, me what you're pointing at is is that when someone uh average ordinary joe blow finds his way into a goanka retreat he brings in a whole lot of stuff that's been happening how he got to the retreat what's been going on who got him into the retreat what's happened this week what happened with his job when he left and all of that kind of stuff and so we come into the retreat with a whole lot of recent garbage. Mm -hmm. But none of that stuff is very deep or very valuable. And so those kind of thoughts kind of melt away. And now we get back to the old stuff, the real crap. <laughs> but then towards the end of the retreat, oh, now we've got to make plans. Now we're thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. And the right thing to do is to stay out of the past and stay out of the future and practice being in great shape right here, right now, to forgive ourselves of the past, to let the past go, to see that much of our past is in fact critical and also dangerous in the sense that we remember every bad thing we did, we remember every bad thing that happened to us, or at least it seems like that. We're uh, that stuff actually affects our daily lives all throughout our lives anyway. We get off into a corner or into meditation and we get away from all the stuff that's happening in the world. All the old stuff that we brought with us starts to come up. And how do we deal with that? Same way we did with the new crap. We just say, never mind. Go that Start stuff again. Out. Start again. Come back to the present moment. Take a deep breath and enjoy your moment. Mm -hmm. Come back over and over again. Yes, in fact, you've probably heard of the three watches of the night. No. Never heard of the three watches of the night. It's one of the big, big items on the rebirthers list. It's, aha, the Buddha teaches rebirth. The Buddha teaches reincarnation. Aha, we got it right here in a sutta. And so that's one of the reasons why it's very famous. But basically, the three watches of the night, in reality, if you've ever been in the Navy like I was, then we recognize we do have three watches of the night. First one starts at 8 in the evening, goes to midnight, the second one is from midnight to 4 a.m., and the third watch of the night is the one where the sun comes up. 
that if you've got to have a watch, it's, it's the midnight watch nobody wants. The, uh, but the watch at 4 a.m. is wonderful. The only problem with the 4 a.m. watch is, is that you've got to wait until the entire crew has eaten breakfast before the watchers get to eat. Because they uh, <laughs> finish their watch at 8 a.m., which is when everybody else has got to be on duty. And then they get to eat the leftovers. But other than that, it's really great because the sun comes up. You get to watch the sunrise every time you do the uh, uh, the third watch of the night. And that's really important here because it's the third watch of the night where Buddha figured out what was going on. In the first watch of the night, he remembers his past. He remembers all kinds of things that happened in the past. And then, in fact, I can attest to that, that I've got a remarkable memory. I remember almost, I mean, day by day of what happened from the time I was in diapers until the time that I, you know, got a good memory. Okay, Elise, I just I, don't like talking about these things with people, so I'm glad that someone else says something like that. Anyways, go ahead. Right, yes, I've got an excellent memory. But it's also a clean memory now because I don't have to have the emotional baggage that comes up with it. That mm. I used to have the thought of the time that I fell out of the treehouse and grabbed the chain by my right arm. And as I was coming down, it was scraping my arm and it was in great pain. And every time that I would think about that, I would wince. Not only that, but I was home and I expected my mommy to be home and she was off someplace. And so there... I was laying on the ground, all injured up, falling down uh, out of the tree, grabbing a chain on the way down, and that wasn't a good idea, okay? And so when I'd have memories about that later, I would wince. It didn't feel good. Now mm. I can happily joyfully, uh, because it's just an old memory. It doesn't mean a thing anymore. Mm. Okay, so this is the kind of way that we look at it is just that that stuff is old. It's in the past. It wasn't me. That was some child that did that. That's not who I am now. I've changed. That's the whole point of understanding personality. I am not that child. And I do not have to, have to feel the way that the child felt when I have these memories. And so when you have thoughts about what you did to that poor girl in high school, you can say, that was not me. I don't do that stuff now. Mm-hmm. So I can just forget about it. Mm. I've already learned my lesson from that. I don't treat girls the way that I treat that girl. So this is how we deal with the past is when it does come up, we can let it go. Not important. That's not what we do now. That's not who I am now. That's something out of the past. And I don't have to go fix it. I don't have to look that girl up on the internet and apologize. She probably does keep my memory. Not even mine. And mm-hmm. in fact, I don't even know if it happened or not. Because there's no way to verify it. And we make up a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, in fact, I still remember my grandfather planting that content. And I was in a conversation with my mom about it when I was about 15 years old. And she says, you could not remember grandfather printing that time because I was only a teenager and you weren't born yet. My mom wins up. I got to believe her. 
that that memory mm. of remembering my grandfather standing at the pantry is a constructed memory. Mm. It may have been another tree, or it may have been something else that I remember. The mind is so tricky, and we do that over and over, play these little things. Our memories are not always so <laughs> clean as you would like to think. Uh-huh. One of them also on that regard would be that I remember saying something to someone that was really terrible, except that when I thought that thought, I did not say it out loud. But the memory is, is that I actually did say it out loud and did have to suffer the consequences. Oh, poor me, I'm such a terrible piece of shit because I said something I didn't even say it. <laughs> this is what memory is. It's good. It's not good going in. It's not good sitting there and it's not good when it's retrieved. Mm. It's almost like a hard drive that's got some sectors missing. <laughs> mm. And it's spotty because we didn't take in good data because we're often mixing what we're thinking with the, the other input that's coming in. And so much of the things that we are actually living out in our experience is constructed in our own mind at the time anyway. And so it's polluted when it goes in. And then it's polluted because when it's in there, it gets mixed up with other memories and we're not quite sure. And then when it comes out, we feel bad about it. So much for remembering. That's one of the things that you could say that's a human curse because dogs don't remember so much. Mm -hmm. You can beat a dog in the morning and he'll be friendly with you in the afternoon. You beat a person, he's going to be angry at you for gosh, how many years? Mm -hmm. So, memory is not such a good thing, but sati is not that kind of memory. Sati is to remember to be here now, to remember to stop thinking about memories and to start being in the present moment. That's what the real practice is all about. Now, these three watches of the night that we were talking about, and that we can remember things that happened in the past, and then the next one, and, and so people will say, oh, well, that means past lives were a million years ago. No, our past lives was that time that was falling down that chain. That time that I did that thing to the girl, that was a different person. So I have been many things with many names throughout this one lifetime. I don't have to add on to it a bunch of crap that's even older than that. Mm. The Buddha says, stay out of the past, this one. So what do you think that the Buddha would have to say about stay out of the past, even the old ones? Mm -hmm. The next one is, uh, the second watch of the night is the coming and going of beings. Now, this is actually the idea that, oh, the Buddha can now stand on uh, some sort of pinnacle or mountaintop of time and see people as they go through various lives. And that's the magical idea of it. But a better way of looking at it is so imagine yourself that you're standing in the tallest, uh, uh, a fairly tall building, three or four stories up. You look out the window and below is a, um, uh, a hardware store and you see this guy walk into the hardware store. And then a few minutes later, you see him walk out of the hardware store. But guess what? He's a different person now. 
His mm-hmm. wallet is wider and his heart is wider because he's got a heavy th- thing that he's carrying. Mm-hmm. Right? Not the same person. The c- guy who came in to that hardware store is not the same guy who walked out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, we try to think, oh, yes, it is because of the personality. But the fact is that personalities are fluid. They change. This is what is really the understanding of white you or personality view is to understand that that personality is not fixed. It's movable. Now, the third watch of the night is called the destruction of the tanks. Well, what are we talking about now? The destruction of the tanks came up with the coming and the going of beings, and the and, uh, destruction of the tanks has come up with old memories. That's the daylight. That's when the sun rises because we can see what's really going on, the actual knowledge to become free from our own past. Mm. Mm. So that's the teaching of the three watches of the night. To wake up, see what's going on, and to drop all of that old stuff. Well, I think that's a perfect... Go ahead. So when you understand that, you can recognize, no, the Buddha did not teach this religious stuff about the precepts and you've got to behave this life so that you'll have a better life next time. No, he says, have a better life right now. Don't wait for the future. Now is the time. That's why he called himself the Tathagatha. The Tathagatha means the one who is gone to the thus or the thisness. To be here now, the one who is in the here now, not stuck in the past or longing for the future, but right here, right now. That's where our freedom lies. Mm. Freedom does not lie in the past. It does not lie in the future. That your safety and your security, as well as your freedom and your comfort and your satisfaction is always right here, right now. And as we progress and feel comfortable and confident in doing that, that's when we gain change the attitude of I could do this. Mm-hmm. I am a winner. I can get my mind together. I can come out of the past. And so that's the most important teaching of the four of the part of the Eightfold Noble Path is that Sama Sankapa, the attitude come out of our childhood victimhood and come into the present champion. You are your own life's champion. One of the students one time said that everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. But most of the emperors are buried under their pile of dirt, and a few of them are struggling trying to get out of their pile of dirt to where the nobles are just sitting on top of their own world. Never mind, it's just a pile of dirt. You're sitting on top of the world. That's the super mundane. That's the local problem. It's just being above it all. Let the past be the past. Mm. We don't have to deal with it at all. I'm sure we can keep on going forever. I always enjoy talking to you. You've shed so much light. Um, I guess let's just end this and I'm sure we can hop on a call sooner or later um, okay. from the topics that we talked about, um, especially right livelihood, because this thing's kind of burning me up inside. 
it's like the last better I need to get rid of. <laughs> but um, actually, what? what you need to get rid of is the dukkha that you have with the thoughts that you have about right livelihood. And start looking at it moment by moment instead of the job itself is a great big thing. Just okay. think about this email, this message. What am I doing right now? Okay. That's the way to work with it is can you okay. tell the truth right now? Okay. Can you refer any references or suttas or anything that I that from our talk I can go ahead and take a look at again well you can listen to this video again yeah I'll definitely do that <laughs> okay so um, when people ask for books or suttas or whatever I will always recommend Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa he's oh, okay. a good place to start so you can google Buddha Dasa and uh, follow the links and you'll find all kinds of things that are there in English Okay, fair enough. In fact, about 10% of the stuff that he has done has been translated into English, and the other 90% is not available to you until you learn to read Thai. <laughs> mm. And I don't think that you need to do that. I think you can find all the Dhamma you need, quite enough of it, within the stuff that's been translated already. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much again. Okay, John. I'm really glad you called. This has been a happy conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. Take it easy. We'll see you Bye. soon. I will right, we'll see you. Bye.